This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is one of the most dangerous periods in American history. That's the conclusion of Washington Post reporters Robert Costa and Bob Woodward, who delve into the lead up to the January 6th insurrection and its aftermath in their new book, Peril. WMFE's Nicole Darden-Creston spoke with Costa about the fallout from the insurrection, Trump's legacy and the state of the Republican Party today. Robert Costa, national political reporter for The Washington Post and co-author with Bob Woodward of the new book Peril, thanks for being with us today. So good to be with you. Now, since our program is largely Florida-centric here, let's explore the intersection between Florida and the waning days and the aftermath of the Trump presidency so far. After January 6th, It seemed there existed in the national political landscape a moment where it's possible Republicans might have split from Trump as a party, with several congressional leaders speaking out publicly to lay the responsibility for the insurrection right at Trump's feet. But that moment passed, and arguably it was Kevin McCarthy's trip to Mar-a-Lago at the end of January that marked its passing. Based on your research and your interviews for this book, Why do you think the party did not go through with that split? It comes down to one word, power. And that scene you just mentioned in the book is so revealing. Kevin McCarthy is frustrated as House Minority Leader with Trump. He's telling Trump a day before Biden is inaugurated in January, call Joe Biden, call Joe Biden. And the president refuses to call Joe Biden. And McCarthy could have walked away from Trump. In fact, Leader McConnell in the Senate in her book says Trump's a fading brand, uses a Kentucky term. He's an off-the-track thoroughbred. Uh, But McCarthy goes down to Florida, down to Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, and he says to Trump, I want to work with you. This is just a few weeks after the insurrection. I want to work with you for 2022. And Trump's very pleased to see him. The Republican Party is coming to him to his Florida political kingdom at Mar-a-Lago, asking for his help. They share hamburgers together. They take off the buns. They're both joking about trying to lose weight. And the scene shows you that power, the Republicans want to come back, win it back in 2022. They want to win it back in 2024. So so many of them, including McCarthy, will keep making that trip down to Mar-a-Lago, to New Jersey, to his golf club, to New York, to see Trump, to solicit him for donations and political help. Back to the topic of January 6th, Florida has the unfortunate distinction of being home to the greatest share of the 615 people arrested so far for their actions related to that day, 69 of them, and that's a little over 11 percent of the arrestees. Your book delves extensively into what was going on behind the scenes with Trump and in the White House that day and the events in Washington leading up to it. Do you think they, the people in Trump's inner circle who were involved in January 6th, do you think they will face accountability? And will it be commensurate with what they did? So as you said, there have been hundreds of people prosecuted by the federal government, by the Department of Justice so far, for their participation in the insurrection. But as a reporter, I'm really closely watching this select committee in the House of Representatives focused on the events of January 6th, because those who were in the White House, those who were around Trump on the phone talking to him, they really matter as we piece this story together. And Bob Woodward and I started off this book project thinking January 6th was just about January 6th. No, no. As we learned over the course of nine or ten months, this is really about January 6th, but also the days before 
the insurrection, the pressure campaign. The New York Times editorial board, in an article about our book, an editorial on Sunday, captured this by saying it was a bloodless but really intense legal and political fight. The John Eastman memo, a conservative lawyer outlining effectively a plan for a coup in the eyes of many. All of this was circulating. And you see Steve Bannon, the former Trump advisor in the White House, still a Trump ally on the outside, Dan Scavino, Trump's social media director. They were just issued subpoenas from the House committee. And in those subpoena documents, uh, not to toot our horn, but just it's interesting repertorially, our book is cited as part of the reason those subpoenas were issued. And it's an example of how there's always more to the story, especially about the presidency. Marty Barron, the former editor of The Post, used to tell me, Focus on what those in power are doing, the person at the top. And the person at the top of all of this on January 6th was President Trump. What was he doing? Who was he talking to? This book tries to tell as much of that story as possible. Well, there are still many issues and questions to answer. I was struck by the Steve Bannon quote in your book about wanting to kill the Biden presidency in its crib. That's quite vivid. Is there anything more graphic than that? I mean, it's just it tells you so much. That one quote, Bannon to Trump, let's kill the Biden presidency in the crib. And think about when he said that, December 30th, 2020. He's telling Trump, who's in Florida, he's saying to Trump, get Pence off the ski slopes in Colorado. Get him back to D.C. and get yourself back to D.C. January 6th, he tells Trump, based on our reporting, is the moment for a reckoning. And it did become that and much more. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is said to be vying for the 2024 Republican presidential nod. And in a new interview over the weekend, Trump said if he faced DeSantis in the primary, quote, I'd beat him like I would beat everyone else. But then Trump added that he thought most people, including DeSantis, would drop out if Trump ran. Do you think Trump will run again? And do you think other Republicans would really clear the field for him if he did? At this point, all the polling shows that President Trump is well-positioned to be the Republican nominee in 2024. But I have two words that sit above my computer in Washington. Those words are assume nothing. And it's easy now to say Trump's going to be the Republican nominee and a likely presidential contender for the general election. But it's very early. We have to see what happens in 2022. Does DeSantis win re-election? Uh, if, if DeSantis can't even win re-election, he's not even probably part of the conversation in 2024. If the Republicans don't win back the House, as some expect them to in 2022, maybe the party's hobbled and Trump doesn't seem to be so much on the march come 2023, 2024. So we can't really get too far ahead of ourselves. But you do see in DeSantis someone who has gotten a national profile in every way, also drawn immense criticism, but he's gotten a lot of support on the right. Uh, due to his handling of the pandemic. Uh, And that's made him uh, someone right up there with Vice President Pence as someone on my list as a reporter. If Trump doesn't run, you could see DeSantis, Pence, and a few others uh, being seen as that top tier. There's a sentence in the book, presidents live in the unfinished business of their predecessors. Now, leaving aside the developments of the pandemic, which is a big, complicated beast that we would surely need more time to tease out the threads from, based on your observations, does that sentiment inform the policies that Biden has faced the most criticism over, which have been the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the deportation of Haitians at the border, both of which are followed closely by Floridians due in part to our population makeup? 
It's an excellent question, and I, Woodward and I stand by that assessment of the presidency, that presidents do live in the unfinished business of their predecessors. And on Afghanistan, Biden's not only living in the unfinished business of Trump, he's living in the unfinished business of Obama. And our book broke the news, and it's really in detail there, about how many members of the military, including General Milley, Secretary Austin at the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State Blinken, they all wanted to slow down the withdrawal. But Biden was adamant when he came in. We, we, we need a full withdrawal. We've got to do this within the calendar year. And he was formed by his experience with Obama. Remember 2009, Obama adds 30,000 troops, U.S. troops to Afghanistan to the mission there. Biden's against that idea. He thinks the military rolled Obama by trying to escalate the U.S. presence. He doesn't want to get rolled when he's now in the presidency. So the past is informing him as much as anything, that unfinished business from 2009 in the Obama years. And on immigration, the president, the previous president took such a hard line to the point of many critics would say it was racist, incendiary, his immigration policies. Uh, Biden's trying to adjust, but sometimes when you adjust, you can be seen as soft on immigration but also you could be seen as too hard, and, and the Border Patrol is always having complicated issues, uh, and the Haitian issue is another example of that. You said in an interview recently that some of your Republican sources, lawmakers and leaders, they would come to your house and they'd talk sometimes for hours about how they felt they have no political capital to speak up, even if they don't believe President Trump's claims about the 2020 election being stolen, which most of them actually don't. And they're not willing to go out there and counter him. Why? Fear for their careers, their political standings. Some critics would say it's cowardice. And as reporters, you sit there sometimes with people who have served in very high positions of power. Or maybe they've been low-level age, but they've been in the Oval Office. They've seen these things up close. And it's not for me to make a moral judgment, but I want to put a mirror up to people in power and show all the different spots, all the different perspectives, not just the one they want to put out there, but to try to give a composite, authentic, truthful view of what happened. And sometimes people think they're coming out fine. So others think they're coming out uh, terribly. It's not for us to carry the water for anyone, but just to try to tell in a deeper way what happened. And people didn't speak up with Trump in part it's clear to me on our reporting that they just didn't feel like they could change him. He was so dug in on a lot of these positions, these conspiracy theories. And the other thing is they like being in the game. I mean, I see this in politics all the time as a reporter. People like being in the room. They don't want to leave the room. When you're close to power, you want to stay close to the flame. And it's easy as a Monday morning quarterback to go say, oh, I tried or I wanted to do this. But when you're there, it's easy to stay there and not really rupture things. And But sometimes there are turning points where people are pushed to the extreme. I think back to the June 2020 scenes of Secretary Esper at the time, Chairman Milley, when they walk across Lafayette Square with President Trump, when he holds that Bible in front of St. John's Church amid the George Floyd protests in Washington, D.C. That was a turning point for both of those men as they thought, we are really getting used by Trump. we got to get away from this uh, this whole position of being used. We need to have some more independence. Robert Costa, national political reporter for The Washington Post and co-author with Bob Woodward of the new book, Peril. Thank you so much for joining us today. WMFE's Nicole Darden-Creston with that interview.
Up next, Central Florida leaders want to figure out how to better track domestic violence cases, from a first 911 call through to a prosecution for the perpetrator or contact with one of the agencies supporting domestic violence survivors. We'll have that conversation after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The Orange County Commission on Domestic Violence is launching a year-long project to map how domestic violence cases are treated in the criminal justice system. The goal is to figure out how to do a better job of holding perpetrators of domestic violence accountable and to improve the outlook for survivors. Well, joining me to talk more about the project is the CEO of Harbour House of Central Florida, Michelle Spurzel. Michelle, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me back. Also joined by the co-chair of the Orange County Commission on Domestic Violence, Dick Batchelor. Dick, thank you as well. So thank you. It's good to be back and appreciate the opportunity. Michelle, I want to start with you. What was the impetus for the project and why is now a good time to be doing this? So working on the commission, we were talking through a lot of things that we know are issues. And one of the things that was brought up is that the drop rate of a domestic violence case is right around 98%. And so we want to make sure that we're able to prosecute if someone wants to be, if someone wants a prosecution to take place for domestic violence. And so part of that that lack might fall within the evidence gathering of building out the case for domestic violence. And so I've done some work across the United States. And one piece that I saw that works really well is mapping the entire process of what happens when someone calls from 911 and that evidence gathering part, and then someone gets arrested. And then what happens from the arrest point all the way to probation. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be mapping that entire process, but we're going to be doing it with the people who are doing the work in the field. And it's going to be a really great project because some of the things we'll find out would be what are going to be just policies. And so it's a policy that might happen within law enforcement or a policy that happens within the 911 call center mm-hmm. or a policy that happens in the Department of Correction. Where are laws that dictate some of the different policies? And then also along with that are just some of the different um norms or the culture of that and people are doing it but they might not know why they're doing it and when we're able to do that we're mapping out what happens with a perpetrator and what happens with a domestic violence survivor what are the journeys and how do we work better as a community to fill those needs and those gaps in order to make sure that um, it's survivor focused and then also perpetrators are being held accountable and so some of the different places this has been happening, it's been happening all over the United States. This is the first community mapping project that's happening in Florida. So we're excited about that. But it could be as simple as knowing that like a 911 report isn't being automatically sent off to a prosecutor. Hmm. It might be something very small. And I'm, I'm really hoping that as we're doing this process and we're doing the mapping of what happens and we're having the conversations with focus groups and we're doing interviews and then truly sitting down with people and we're going to be creating boxes and directionals and circles. Like we're going to be doing a true map. We're going to be able to have some really great aha moments. And the commission then will be able to take the recommendations of those aha moments and we can put those into practice within our entire system here in Orange County. Dick Batchelor, the drop rate, by which I, I gather that means the cases which may start with a 911 call but then doesn't end up in a prosecution, uh, that seems like a very high 
percentage of cases which don't make it all the way to prosecution. So is that something that has been on the radar of the commission from the get-go? Yes, it has been. And I want to say my co-chair of all these years has been Judge Alex Blackwell, who has been on the domestic violence bench for about 15 years. In addition to that, on the commission, we had the state's attorney, we had the public defender, we had the sheriff, we had OPD, we had advocates, we had Harbor House, which was our really reservoir of great information and how the system works. But to answer your question, yes, and that is one of the issues that I think the mapping project will really help us identify what's going wrong. Are the cases not being brought? Are people not making the calls? Is law enforcement handling it wrong? Should we be responding to domestic violence cases like we are mental health cases with somebody from Harbor House with law enforcement to be sure that uh, the people get in the system, access the system? So I think the answer is yes, but I think this mapping project, which Michelle was able to secure funding for, is going to be extraordinarily telling because we can take a person who is uh, has experienced domestic violence and say, this is how you access the system. Here's how you get treatment. Here's how you provide for your family, your children in particular. You know, here's how you file. Here's how to to the clerk of the court to be sure that the filings are there. But but, but having the uh, state's attorney's office involved with us is really really critical because obviously they're the the state's attorney's the one that has to uh, make sure they've got the information sufficient enough to bring charges. So yes, we uh, by this mapping will help help us really not just. Um, kind of pontificate about what the problem is, but we'll know exactly the system that's necessary to make sure the survivors are treated well. Michelle, um, what kind of resources do uh, frontline law enforcement officers have to spot signs of domestic violence and therefore follow up? And also when you mentioned 911 operators and other people who are maybe involved in the, the very first part of seeing a case, what, you know, what kind of access do they have to resources or what kind of training do you think they might need to help get a handle on these cases quicker? So I think we're going to find out more about that. Like I, I, I know just because of some of the different things that I've been exposed to, but that's what we're going to be finding out. We're going to find out it, what kind of screening processes do they use? Is there a, a quick form that they can utilize in order to make sure that someone's going to be responding um, are they asking questions right away? Are they asking safety questions right away? And so those are things I don't know the answer to right now that we're hoping that all of us can learn together. And um, one of the, I think one of the benefits of doing the community mapping with a group that's going to be made up of a lot of different first responders is that we're all going to be sitting in the room and we're going to be hearing about how different parts of our the system respond to a domestic violence call that we don't know. We have our own assumptions. We have our own thoughts. We, we think we know, mm -hmm. but it's going to be all of us hearing a little bit more and learning a little bit more because that's where we're going to say, well, I thought it happened this way. And someone's going to say, no, this is actually how it happens. And I'm doing that way because this is the policy that we have in place to dictate it. Yeah, I was going to say, we're looking uh, in Orange County, the law enforcement is really on the cutting edge with us uh, back when, uh, Mayor Demings, uh, Mayor Demings was a sheriff and, and uh, Chief Mina was at the OPD and now uh, Chief uh, uh, Ramon is there. They're very attentive to this issue and they sit on the commission. So they really want to know how to best train their officers and how to respond. 
And uh, Michelle can correct me if I'm wrong, but the policy has been, or had been for many years in Orange County, if they received a domestic violence call, usually they were going to take somebody to jail. They were going to basically separate uh, the, the parties. And I don't know if they're still doing that, but unlike the national case, it's still gathering headlines every day. Uh, if you went to law enforcement officer witnesses domestic violence, which was the case that we're, I'm referring to, they're going to make an arrest. They're not going to just take somebody's word for it. They're going to make an arrest. So in Orange County, we're lucky in, the, in Orlando to have OPD and OSO and also Mayor Demings having been the sheriff and now is there. I think this is a very serious issue. And I'm going to um, really also join in saying that the Orange County Sheriff's Office, Apopka PD, and also Orlando Police Department, they're very, very good about having uh, their officers and giving Harbor House access to their officers on shift briefings or when they have new officers coming in to do a training on domestic violence where we can talk about what services do we offer? Because by law, they talk about what services are available, but then they're also hearing about it firsthand. The other thing that they're fantastic about is that we have advocates that are co-located within all three of those uh, and um, entities. And the offices there really do utilize our advocates as resources to go over the different cases, to talk through what do you see as a sign. We're able to look at a lot of the different um, records to find out if there's somebody who we see domestic violence by reading the report and that we're able to reach out to that survivor and we're able to do what we call early intervention. We're able to talk to the survivor about, hey, we're looking at the report and we see that there are a lot of red flags and we want to make sure you know that we're here for you and this is how Harbor House can help if you want our services. And so I really feel like we are in a good position to be able to um, really help at that very first point in time when there is a call out and arrest is made and we're able to work with survivors. Michelle, one of the things that you've told me is that sometimes for a survivor of domestic violence, it can be difficult to figure out what's going on when it's happening or when you're inside the situation. Like it's hard to get some perspective and that's part of the 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 problem. Like it's, you know, it's not just the, uh, the physical abuse in some cases, it's the also the mental trauma that they may be experiencing or, um, you know, control the perpetrator may have over, be exerting over that person. So is that part of the sort of mind shift you're, you're looking to, to change there? Or, or are you trying to change some attitudes with the part of the research here as well? So working with the system itself, where I, I hope and what other communities have been able to see is that they're able to look to see how can we make that system more survivor focused so that we are believing the person, that we're able to provide services to them throughout that entire process. And it's not just the domestic violence center that's providing them. And so that is really tied to what you were saying that when someone's in it, they, they might minimize the violence. They might not see it as lethal as we see it because it has been there every day. And the more that we talk to other service providers and we work together, we're gonna be able to help the survivor pick out some of those different things so we can help paint the picture um, to hold the perpetrator accountable. If you're just joining me, my guest, uh, Michelle Spurzel with Harbor House of Central Florida and Dick Batchelor with the Orange County Commission on Domestic Violence. Dick, do you see the commission as having 
kind of like a coordinating role in the different groups that are involved in combating domestic violence? Is that part of what the commission is doing? Yes, absolutely, because uh, we've been able to engage our judges, not just uh, Judge Blackwell, but other judges, um, uh, Judge Lattimore and others. So we're, we're really down in the trenches, so to speak. And I wanted to follow up on something Michelle said, because in response to your question, too, is that, you know, you there's collateral damage involved, if I might use that term, in domestic violence cases. Let's say the children, you know, if you go back now, fortunately, we're, we're kind of moved ahead in our thought process regarding the damage to children. There's what they're called ACE, Adverse Childhood Experience. Mm-hmm. One of those ACE uh, ratings is whether or not you've been sub- subject to abuse or you've witnessed abuse. It's the emotional involvement, the emotional abuse. So we have to look at the children, and that's why, obviously, uh, Michelle and Harbor House take not only most cases, uh, the woman, but also her children, because if you do not address the needs of that uh, survivor and the survivor's children, there is an adverse childhood experience. If you don't try to do something uh, to mitigate the impact on those children, what you will see, and again, Michelle is the expert on this, but what you can see, it will manifest itself you know, longitudinal or, or uh, you know, familiarly, you'll see it play out again and again. I give Michelle's a better expert on that than me, but I'm, I'm knowledgeable enough that the commission is to say, you've got to look at the children too and the residual, uh, let's put it lightly, impact on those children from an adverse childhood experience. Michelle, does this project have that scope or are you really just trying to focus more on the perpetrator and the uh, you know, the, the survivor or the immediate victim of the violence? So what's really great about this project is that it is going to be focusing on the criminal justice system, as I mentioned, from the 911 call to the um, probation. But we're utilizing a group that's called Praxis International. And that system that they're teaching us is something we can apply to a lot of the other systems that fall within domestic violence. So we can really look at the child welfare system. We can look at the civil system after we are we finish this project. And so that's what's great about this. And um, I enjoy so much working with Dick Bachelor because he always brings up the don't forget about, don't forget about the pets, don't forget about the kids. And because they are part of this and they are part of this journey. And um, if we're able to help break the cycle, then we know for those children that they have a better chance of not becoming a victim themselves in the future or becoming a perpetrator. Um, bringing it back to the commission, one thing that I thought that Dick Bachelor and Judge Blackwell did amazingly well, and then also the, the staff that associated that um, put us all together, is that this is the project, the map that we're talking about is just one of the committees that we're, we're moving forward with. And so I'm the chair of the System Process Committee. There's also the Court Process Committee the Community Service and Resources Committee, and then also the Public Awareness and Community Committee. And so what is amazing about this community is the fact that there are so many different people who are invested in really helping uh, survivors, really looking at the system of domestic violence and the systems that make it up, that make it really helpful for survivors, the ones that are not as helpful for survivors, and the ones where we're really trying to work better with perpetrator accountability. Um, and I just want to say that it has been really great working on a on a committee like this that really everybody's so engaged and they want solutions. Mm. 
man live man if i'm not interjecting but you always look for me for this historical perspective which means i've been around for a long time and the, the community's attitude embracing this is a topic bringing the community together to see what we can do when i first filed uh domestic violence bill back in, I believe it was in 78, which was a strength in the old uh, legislation. I had law enforcement officers in 1978 come to me and say, you know, we're, we don't support this legislation because domestic violence is a family issue and not a law enforcement issue. It took me some time to convince some of these shell, uh, sheriffs that at the time that the women and children are not chattel. I mean, they're not property. You can't treat them as you will. And but so we I say that, but put it in perspective in 1978, that was the attitude. And it was hard to get people to focus on it. It was buried. If a prominent person was uh, accused of it, the story never appeared in the paper. This community has come quantum leaps and is evidenced by the commission and everybody around the table. They recognize that domestic violence is a major issue. They want to find ways to reduce domestic violence, but they want to find ways to make sure that the perpetrators are also held accountable for it. So we've we come a long way in this, uh, encouraging uh, to know that the community is there and responsive and really doing very specific things, as was alluded to by Michelle. Do you have funding for this work? I always just feel that there's there's so many things we could be doing that the funding is going to always be something we need more of in order to do this type of system work and to dig down and figure out how we can work with what we have and how do we improve it. Like a lot of people, that isn't something that they want to invest in. And they're like, oh, but there's a process and it's already set up and we're just going to keep on moving forward. But we need to be able to talk about it and work through it in order to improve it. And for the mapping project, yes, we were able to get funding secured for us to be able to do the project. And so I'm really excited about that. And then it's going to be based on the recommendations of what's next and what are we going to be able to do. And so for for me, um, really taking that that to the next step is I'm always going to be looking for, I'm looking for funding now so we can implement whatever the action steps that are recommended after we um, do the mapping project. So yeah, and so it sounds like you're trying to wrangle together a lot of different facets of you know systems and different information. Could be a lot of personnel involved in it. So how expensive is it? Where's the funding coming from? So for the mapping project, we are going to be doing it. Um, on a, basically, it's going to be done by volunteers, and so it's going to be the people who are already doing the work. So we're we're really pulling together two different committees, a lead committee and then a committee of the different people who are doing the work in the community. So we're going to be pulling from law enforcement, 911, corrections, state attorney's office, prosecutors, judges, and bringing them into the room for different stages of putting together the mapping. And then we're working with a group that's called Praxis International, and they're leading us on this journey of how do we do the mapping. Um, the mapping project itself is going to be costing us right around $40,000 to be able to take it through um, and to bring it from point A to point B. And so, and that's really that year-long project of helping um, for the technical assistance and the expertise in order for us to be able to do that for the community. Is, it, is the county putting up the money for that? 
So no, it's actually going to be coming from um, Harbor House and one of our funders that we were able to work with in order to get the funding secured. And so that's the other piece is that I was able to work with some of our funders to have that happen. Matt, I will say though that the the the, the mayor has been very responsive in when we made our recommendations. A great number of them, again, Michelle already mentioned those. Uh, the county's now assigning their staff at the appropriate yeah. levels to really say, okay, now we need to find a way to implement this. There is going to be a cost figure. There's going to be a budget figure. So when we come up with that figure, we will go to the resource. We, we will go to sources for funding, not only the community, but we will work with the county for specific budget request items in the county budget because the mayor has really put his stamp of approval. He's the one that gave us the direction to re uh, kind of re-engage and come up with very specific recommendations and said they would be response, responsive to any budget requests in the future. So with, funding will be there. And also we've been fortunate uh, with the legislature as far as trying to secure uh, additional funding. But again, we're going to do funding requests for the county, state's attorney's office, you know, wherever we can. When we find out the role that they absolutely play, that I think it's easier to go to a public policy, uh, a public office holder, whether it be the mayor, county commissioner, or even the legislative delegation say, now here's empirical data. Here's exactly what's wrong with the system. Here's how we need to fix the system. And there are some physical notes attached. So I'm, I'm encouraged to say that we, we will get the kind of response that we need as far as funding once we have this roadmap, so to speak. I was going to say along with that, that this is just one part of these four other, there's four subcommittee groups, and this is just one of those. And so the staff support that we're able, that we're being given by the county is amazing. And also the fact that it's the county invested in doing this really helps pull together that that group that we're going to need to be in the room to do mapping. Um, Harbor House, we're just one of many that touched this entire issue of domestic violence. And so to have the county be the ones who are helping us pull everybody together is what's going to make this work. It wouldn't be happening if it just was one entity. It really does take the entire community to make it happen. And so you're going to start in January and hopefully you'll have some answers by December. Yeah, we are starting in January. We want to do an update in about May or June when we're halfway through. Our goal is to really finish the phase one, which we're considering 911 to arrest. And we'll have some data then. And then um, June until probably November, December is when we're going to be working on that second part and then have some really good updates for October and then close it out in December. Well, Michelle Spurzel is the CEO of Harbor House of Central Florida. Thanks for joining us and talking us through this program. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And Dick Batchelor is the co-chair of the Orange County Commission on Domestic Violence. Dick, thank you as well. Thank you as always, Matt. Appreciate it. Still to come, celebrities like William Shatner are blasting off to the edge of space. The Russians beat Tom Cruise to get a film crew in orbit, and NASA's enormous moon rocket is stacked up in the high bay at the Kennedy Space Center and getting closer to launch. We'll check in for an update on the latest space news with WMFE's Brendan Byrne after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Low Earth orbit is a busy place these days, and all civilian missions circled the Earth on a multi-day mission recently, 
and SpaceX is getting ready to launch another crew to the International Space Station later this month. Meanwhile, billionaire space barons Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson have opened up space tourism to even more people with their vehicles carrying paying passengers to the edge of space, and NASA is forging ahead with its deep space rocket program. To catch up on the latest space news, I'm joined by WMFE's Brendan Byrne. Brendan, thanks for being with me. You got it. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with a program that isn't going so well, Boeing Starliner. What's the holdup? Failure to launch, right? Uh, yeah, there's there's an issue with the valves on the Starliner's uh, on the capsule. And this was discovered during a recent attempt to um, to launch the vehicle earlier this summer. Now, you'll probably remember, Matt, this is the second time Boeing will be launching the Starliner capsule, which mm-hmm. is designed and developed to, to take it, astronauts to the International Space Station and back. That 2019 launch um, didn't make it to the International Space Station. There was a software issue. Uh, Boeing fixed the software issue, ran through a full test of it. Everything seemed fine. They get the vehicle back on the pad for another launch and discover that these valves are stuck. Um, these are kind of important valves for the Starliner. Um, they are the ones that you know control the maneuverability of of the vehicle. Uh, so having these valves not work is is a big problem. Um, Boeing thinks that the issue is uh, is with some corrosion. So um, what they have done is taken it back into the factory and are taking it apart and trying to figure it out. So is what's bad for Boeing in terms of these delays good for SpaceX, given that their program is up and running and we're now up to what? the fourth crewed mission yeah i mean in in the public perception of things yes this is good this is good for spacex um you know holistically this is bad for nasa um nasa picked two providers for this um you know for the redundancy of having two different systems that could get the astronauts up there so nasa really wants both of these to to uh to work out just in case you know something happens that may ground uh, SpaceX's Crew Dragon, they'd have an additional way to get astronauts up there. Um, but this is this is quite serious for NASA, and, and NASA expects, or seems like NASA expects, that this delay will be lengthy. Mm. Um, just because of scheduling, Boeing can't relaunch this uncrewed vehicle until early 2022, um, and then from there they would have to go through the certification process. So, I mean, we're looking at at least midway through next year for something like this to happen. So, what NASA ended up actually doing is seeing these delays, they actually pulled some of the astronauts that were training on Boeing Starliner who don't have any space flight experience, and they're putting them on a future mission uh, on SpaceX's Crew Dragon, the Crew 5, which will launch in, in fall of 2022. Mm. And the reason for this is they want to get these astronauts up in space. Uh, they want them to have this because both of these astronauts could be on NASA's Artemis missions, which are the future lunar missions. Uh, so they want to get them flying. Um, so that's kind of a telling sign that NASA thinks that this is going to be a quite a lengthy delay uh, and has moved two of those astronauts, Nicole Mann and uh, Josh Casada. There is another spaceflight rookie by the name of Jeanette Epps who is still on the Boeing uh, mission, but it's very possible that she could move to that Crew-5 as well, depending on whether or not the Russians take a seat on that SpaceX vehicle. So a lot up in the air, but it's very telling that, that NASA's moving these astronauts to a system uh, that they know is flying. You mentioned Artemis, and NASA, of course, is committed to building that deep space system, the rocket and the uh, capsule to get astronauts to the moon and beyond. Where is the Artemis program at right now? It's in the vehicle assembly building right now. It's all stacked up and and ready to go. Um, Artemis 1 is going to be the first kind of fully integrated launch of the 
SLS and Orion system. Um, so there was a launch back in you know 2014. You might remember of of the um, of the Orion spacecraft, but that was not launched on SLS. Mm-hmm. It was launched on Delta Delta Four Heavy. Uh, this will be the first launch of the space launch system uh, using Orion. It's going to be no crew on this mission, but it will go around the moon and back after launching from Kennedy Space Center. So most of that rocket has already been assembled um, in, in the vehicle assembly building. It's massive. Um, it's taking up you know one of those giant high bays. Um, and it actually completed a very critical test of all of the systems. So NASA looked at the assembly, they looked at all of the hardware, they looked at the software, they looked at the ground systems, um, the testing procedures, uh, the manuals, uh, and they gave it the green light. So the next thing is to integrate the Orion capsule on top of it. Uh, NASA will take it out to to the launch pad, LC-39B, will fuel it up. Uh, it will be a, a wet uh, dress rehearsal, um, just like they were going to launch, um, then bring it back in, do some more tests, and then eventually send it to uh, on this trip to the moon and back. And NASA is very optimistic about that uh, launch date in November of this year. It's very likely that will happen in the first quarter of next year. Um, but we're very close. And uh, it's a very exciting mission because the next mission is going to take humans on the capsule on a very similar mission around the moon and back. And finally, the third Artemis mission will take uh, a group of, of NASA astronauts to the moon, and then land them on the surface. So, I mean, we're very close to, to putting humans back on the moon. NASA says the program will land the first woman and first person of color on the moon, but there's some competition out there, right? What about Elon Musk's deep space rocket and what the Chinese are working on with their space program too? Yeah, I'll start with the Chinese because there's really not much we know about the Chinese space agency. They're, they're very secretive about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they did attempt to launch a, a or they la- they landed a lander on the moon. Uh, they've got a, a, a working space station in orbit, uh, and they, we do know that they have lunar ambitions. When or, or how, we're, we're still kind of unsure about that. Um, Elon Musk also has deep space ambitions, and that's the reason why he founded his company SpaceX was to make – humans interplanetary and, and land them on places like the moon and Mars. But those those first astronauts that you mentioned in your question, Matt, they're going to be riding Elon Musk's uh, starship to the surface of, of the moon. Um, NASA put out a, a call for proposals um, to, to develop a, a looning, lunar landing system. Uh, SpaceX was one of the uh, uh, companies that... Uh, that applied, that, that bid for this, and they were the sole winner of this contract. So the first few looning, lunar landing missions will be on SpaceX's uh, Starship, which is really cool. There's some controversy over that bid too, right? Jeff Bezos not too happy that SpaceX won. I think he was suing, wasn't he? There's quite a bit of controversy over that bid, and uh, there were there were three companies. Um, there was SpaceX, who ultimately won, a company called Dynetics, um, and then another group called the National Team, which was comprised of multiple partners, including Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. Mm-hmm. Um, An earlier litigation actually forced NASA to stop uh, work on the program. So SpaceX had to stop work on NASA's portion of Starship. They're already developing Starship out in, in Boca Chica, Texas for other things. So they were still able to continue, but they couldn't communicate with NASA. Um, that has since been lifted. Uh, Jeff Bezos kind of is, is in Blue Origins throwing a Hail Mary right now in federal court to try to get uh, get it to stop. But there was some really interesting reporting uncovered from uh, The Verge um, 
reporter Joey Roulette filed a FOIA request and got some internal documents about why they decided to pick SpaceX. And they said that, you know, Blue Origin took a gamble on their pricing strategy. They expected, you know, Blue Origin said, well, I'm going to charge you more and then, hey, come back and then we'll lower the price. Whereas SpaceX just said, here's our price. Um, and NASA wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> so um, there could be, or, or there's the possibility that there will be they can compete for future contracts, so, you know, after the first few lunar landing missions. But right now, they're, they're kind of throwing that Hail Mary to see if they can still get in, and it doesn't look good for, for Blue Origin. Well, it's not all about human spaceflight, though. There are some pretty important scientific missions coming up. Um, talk to me a little bit about the Lucy mission. What's it going to be doing? So, yeah, so, so Lucy is a space probe um, that is heading to the Trojan asteroids. Um, and these are asteroids that kind of, they're two clumps of asteroids that uh, orbit around Venus. Some of them are before Venus and, and some orbit behind. Um, and we, we really haven't been to these asteroids. We don't know much about them. Um, and scientists are really excited to visit Lucy uh, just because these are kind of the key building blocks, or they think it holds the, the key building blocks as to how our outer planets um, were, um, were created. And what's really interesting about this one is Lucy has a very intricate um, kind of set of directions to get to where it's going. And it's going to be visiting these two separate clumps. Um, so it's kind of gets to do this loop-de-loop -loop, uh, around different areas in our solar system to get there. So it's a very, very complex mission, a very small window that opens up uh, for it to launch. Uh, but we should get some really, really cool information about, about those asteroids, a place we've never been to before, uh, and uh, also get some insight as to how the outer planets formed. And what about DART? I understand this one borrows something from Hollywood or kind of has a, a mission that's similar to the plot of a fairly well-known Hollywood movie. Yeah, so humans, we are um, we don't like to see history repeated, and we know that the dinosaurs were uh, left extinct because of an asteroid, so that's always been kind of a, a fear of, of the human species is that another asteroid is going to come and hit us. Uh, so, so what DART, DART stands for the Double Asteroid Redirect Test. And basically, we want scientists want to find out if if we were facing down a Armageddon or deep impact scenario, um, could we fire something at an asteroid and knock it off of its course? Uh, so what they've done is they've identified this this small asteroid. It's it's not very big, uh, called Didymos, and Didymos has a moon that orbits it. I suggested they call it Diddy Moon. I'm not sure if they called it Diddy Moon yet, but. Uh, <laughs> So there's Didymos and this little moon that's orbiting around it. And DART is this tiny little spacecraft that they're just going to fire at it and, and, and capture how much of that orbit we knock off Didymoon. Um, and going from there, we can, we can expand it bigger to say, hey, if we are facing down you know, an extinction-level asteroid, we can use this technique with this data that we've uncovered from the DART mission to kind of knock it off course. So it's a very small-scale Armageddon test, <laughs> in the simplest of terms. Now, speaking of Hollywood, William Shatner is one of the astronauts headed for the edge of space on a Blue Origin mission. What does this tell you about the level of interest in space tourism? You can read this two different ways. Um, so Shatner's flying in... Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, New Shepard. This is his suborbital rocket. Um, if you saw the, you know, the, the last mission was Jeff Bezos was in it. He took his brother with him. He took Wally Funk, this famed aviator, 
um, and a paying customer. And now for the second flight, um, there, there are a few other paying customers on board. One of them is the founder of, of uh, Planetary, which is this really uh, interesting organization that has a fleet of, of uh, satellites that take pictures of the Earth. Uh, a longtime space fan, um, so he's super excited to go. But then you have Shatner, and you can, you can think of either, you know, this is space tourism is, is super exciting that, you know, even people like William Shatner want to go to space. Or you can look at it as, man, Blue Origin really needs to get excitement on, on this thing. So they're putting William Shatner <laughs> in the vehicle. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see. We, we don't know how many people have bought tickets for Blue Origin. We don't even know how much the average ticket is. Um, because they are a private company, this is proprietary information. Um, so you can look at it in a sense that they need to drum up support. So they're doing this as a publicity stunt to get more people to want to buy these things on it. So it'll be interesting to see what, what comes of this mission, if there are more people that want to go, or if this is just going to be something for the rich and the famous to be able to jump in a capsule and go to space. Well, on the theme of actors in space, Tom Cruise is planning to film a movie in space, but it looks like a Russian film crew kind of beat him to the punch. They sent an actor and a film crew to the space station. Brennan, what can you tell me about that mission? Yeah, there's always a space race going on right now, right? So, so the Russians did beat the uh, the U.S. film industry in space. Um, so this this is part of, of um, recent developments at the International Space Station where it has been opened for commercial activity. And, and commercial activity includes using it as a location to film movies. Mm. Um, so this, this Russian, um, it was a, a Russian actor and director flew up there. Uh, they ran into actually kind of a, a, a bit of a hiccup on the way there. So a little real life drama um, when the automated docking didn't work, they had to actually hand dock to the International Space Station. But they're just only up there for a few days. They'll come back um, and, and filming scenes for this movie. Um, Tom Cruise is also in talks, as you mentioned, to film up there. Uh, we don't know when that will happen. Um, he'll be riding a, a SpaceX Crew Dragon, uh, but we have to assume that that, that will happen uh, sooner rather than later. Um, the Inspiration4 mission that you mentioned at the top of the, uh, the show here, Tom Cruise spoke with them and, and spoke with the crew to, we can assume, get some insight as to what it was like being on Dragon um, that he's going to bring to that. So, so yeah, the, uh, the final frontier of film is uh, opening up <laughs> in space. Brendan Byrne is WMFE Space Reporter. Thank you so much for your time and your insights, Brendan. Appreciate it. Anytime, Matt. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Nicole Darden-Creston and Brendan Byrne. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. You can also listen back to archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.